Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So happy Mother's Day to all you moms. Thank you for all that you do. Um, Larry mentioned earlier, we are in this series called uh, Bringing Sexy Back. And I'm sure a lot of you are wondering, okay, how are they going to tie this into Mother's Day, okay? Um, but here's a tie-in. Here's a tie-in. The, the truth of the matter is, when we've been talking about bringing sexy back, it's been about bringing it back into the context, the larger context that God has for it, um, and particularly into our marriages. And, and I'm going to tell you, dads, um, husbands, the very best thing you can do for your children is to love their mother. Absolutely, the very best thing you can do. And, and that goes the same way too. Moms, the very best thing you can do for your kids is to love their dad. Because children develop best and grow um, and are nurtured best in a, in, a, in a cohesive family where love is expressed um, consistently and confidently all the time. Um, because what you are doing is you are creating an environment and you are modeling something for them that's going to stay with them for the rest of their life. So for what you do in all of that, um, thank you moms, thank you dads too. But most importantly, what I want you to do today is kind of think, like I said, Think of sex in the bigger picture of the marriage relationship because that's the way God designed it to be. And um, the trouble with all of this is that marriage is hard. Marriage is a really, really tough thing. And marriage is hard because love is hard. I've had someone ask me one not too long ago, said, why is it that love is so hard? Why is it so difficult? I mean, and we've got this idea that love ought to be easy. It ought to be just very natural, something you fall into. You fall into love. You know, what could be easier than that? But the truth of the matter is that love is hard. And love is hard due to one simple word. If I could sum it all up into one word, it's this. Selfishness. <laughs> love is hard because we are selfish. That's really what makes it so, so hard that marriage and love take a lot of work. Now, what happens is that we all, when we're looking for a life partner, and, and this morning I'm going to talk a little bit more to married couples, but this is still important for you if you are single. This is the kind of stuff you need to know now that you, you know, all the married people here are saying, boy, I wish I'd heard this like 10, 15 years ago, okay? And if you are married, um, this, this all ties in together. Um, because when we marry, when we're pursuing, when we're looking for a life mate, what we are looking for is what we call a soul mate, okay? And a soul mate is simply this. A soul mate is funny, attractive, loves me, and accepts me just the way that I am, that I get all the benefits of this relationship without having to change a single thing about myself. That's what we usually mean when we're talking about a soulmate, that we are so compatible, we have a song, we have chemistry, we have all of these things, and boy, when we get married, it's just going to be wonderful because they're not going to ask me to do anything I don't want to do. And then you get married and you realize that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> we're looking for a soulmate, and usually what that means is someone that will accept me just the way that I am and put no demands on me. And we look for, in marriage, what we're looking for is happiness. And we think the path is hap to happiness is by satisfying all of my desires, all of my needs. And the path to happiness is actually quite a bit different than that. And if you're going to, if you're going to develop a happy marriage, the truth of it is, to develop a happy marriage, you need to let go of your selfishness. 
And so this morning, we're going to talk about how do you do that? Because the Bible gives some really, really good, good examples of it. And if you want to follow along, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we've looked at this already one time, but I'm going to see it a little bit in a different context this morning because it really goes to the heart of what we're talking about. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives ought to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and shall be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This, he writes, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, what most of us are looking for is what, uh, what's been called me marriage, that I marry for my own happiness, um, that it's all about me and what I'm getting out of the relationship. The trouble is when you only marry for happiness, what happens when your happiness wanes? I've, I've had people come to me and they're talking about leaving their wife, leaving their husband. And they say things like, I'm just not happy anymore. Don't I deserve to be happy? You know, I want to say to them, doesn't your wife deserve to be happy? What about your kids? Don't they deserve to be happy? This is just selfishness. The best way to happiness in your marriage, truly the best way to happiness in any relationship is get rid of your selfishness. And the way that you get rid of your selfishness is through this word called submission. Now, I know what just happened. I said that word, and about half of the audience just closed the door, slammed it in the face, and said, I'm not listening to this one, okay? Because I've heard that submission stuff before. Now, I think it's been mistaught. I think it's been mistaught completely in many churches. And so what I want to do is tackle this whole thing, but from a perspective of why God put it together and why relationships work best when we operate in this way. Now, let me also say... I had planned this morning, because it always works best to do some kind of this teaching um, with my wife. And um, so we had planned this morning that she was going to come, and we were going to kind of teach this together. However, our new grandson changed our plans. And so she is now not just grandma, she is being mommy uh, this weekend to our granddaughter. So um, her hands are a little tied, yeah. So we're really excited about that, but it left me with half a sermon. Um, So I'm going to do my best to give her side of the story. I really will. Um, She did write some things down, and she had some really good notes. So um, I'm going to do my best to give give her side of the story and all of this. But here's the thing. What I want you to do is kind of keep your mind open for a moment. If you think this whole submission thing is just like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to hear it, just keep the door ajar and listen to this, because it really has to do with this idea of building happiness into your marriage. And the way to do that is get rid of selfishness. And the way you get rid of selfishness is with submission. So a couple of things Paul talks about here. First one is, if you're going to turn a me marriage into a we marriage, one of the things you have to do is you've got to recognize it's your selfishness that's the main problem. 
It's your selfishness. See, here's what happens. Typically, within the first six months or so of getting married, you come to this sudden realization, I married a selfish person. And then it usually takes a little bit longer after that, but eventually you come around to the understanding, and so did she. <laughs> and, and, then, and then we make this, this, this assumption, and the assumption is this, I might be selfish, but the real problem is her selfishness. See, I, I, yeah, I can be selfish at times, but the real problem with our marriage is it's her selfishness. It's my spouse's selfishness. If they would just, if they would just get rid of their selfishness, everything would be fine. And the truth of the matter is, it's your selfishness. If you want to have a happy marriage, the first thing you got to do is admit, it's my selfishness that's the problem here. We always want it to be the other person, but it's my selfishness. We've got a couple of examples of this. Betty wrote this one, and I, she does a much better job telling this, but I'll do my best. I was a spoiled teenager. My mother did everything for us. Food magically appeared on our table. I had no idea where it came from or how it got there. When I was late for a date, she would iron my clothes and have them all laid out for me so I could get ready quickly. Then I got married. I'm supposed to do what? Work, clean, cook dinner, do laundry, clean up after. I don't even know how to do these things. Where's my mom? Why aren't you my mom? Even now, she says, I find myself wanting my needs met first. I get quiet and huffy if I have to do the things that are supposed to be Ken's. Laundry on Fridays, taking out the garbage. Look at me, she says. Compliment me. Take care of me. It was one of those things. And I'll be honest with you, I was probably the more selfish. Because when, she, when we got married and we moved in together and, and all this started, she began to realize all these things. But what she did was she went ahead and did those things. And I was a student at the time, and I was studying really, really, really hard. I mean, I had lots of reading to do and all kinds of things. And so I was more than content to let her do all of those things. I mean, after all, I, was, I had all these books to read, and I had all these papers I had to do. And so I, she, would, you know, she would literally, I hate to admit this, she would come home from work, and I would be, well, I had so much reading to do, and late afternoon, when you're laying on the couch with a book propped up, I would just nod off. And she would come home through the door, wake me up, and go, oh, oh, yeah, I'm just studying. And then she would, because she was the one who was basically supporting us, and then she would have to go cook dinner. And I was more than happy to let her do that because it worked out okay for me. You know, I was fine. But the truth is that was selfishness on my part. She was selfish as well. And it wasn't until we began to realize, you know what, I'm the one that's got to change. Because that's the reality because truth is, you can't change the other person as hard as you might try, as many suggestions, as much nagging, as many different ways you think they ought to change. You can't change them. The only person you can be responsible for is yourself. And the best thing you can do is take care of your own selfishness. Now, I know there's a couple of husbands that are elbowing their wives saying, are you listening to this? But I'm talking to you, husbands. See, it's, it's your selfishness. Now, here's the thing. When you come up against that, what it does is it causes friction in the marriage. So you have one of two choices. You can continue to fight for your rights, stand your own ground, but that's just going to continue tension in the marriage. It's going to cause constant conflict. You're going to be arguing about the same things over and over and over again. The second choice is you kind of arrive at a truce and you just kind of decide, okay, we're not going to talk about it because we don't, have, don't want to have the arguments, but it festers and it simmers below the surface. 
then neither one of those solve the problem. There's a third alternative, and this is the biblical pattern. It's submission, and it's a mutual submission. Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He starts this whole passage, not talking about husbands and wives. He starts the whole thing saying, submit to each other. You do that. You take the initiative. Start working on your own selfishness. Now, this is simply what submission means. Because I know it's got all kinds of connotations to it. Submission is simply this. Putting the interests, the desires, and the needs and wants of my spouse ahead of my own. That's all that means. That I care more about her than she cares about me. That I take care of her more than she takes care of me. It's just, it's just changing the deal. It's instead of me on top and me making all the decisions and me getting my way and me getting taken care of, it's switching it around and putting her at the top. And that's really all that it means. It's, it's, and, and, and look at the reason he gives for it. He says you do this out of reverence for Christ. It says if you want to know the motivation, it's not because he's such a great guy. It's not because she earned that place in, in, in your eyes. It's, it's out of reverence for Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is take all of your love, all of your respect, all of your gratitude for that amazing grace that Christ has shown to you and then take it and shower it on your wife. Shower it on your husband. Because, you know, we can stand, we can, we can stand. This morning we had a great time of worship and we can sing and tears down our eyes and how wonderful God is and how, how much we love him and appreciate all that he's done for us. He says, that's easy. <laughs> that takes no effort at all. I, I, I love the sentiment, but, but if you really want to show me how much you love me, love your spouse. Take all of that gratitude. Take all of that love. Take all that wonder and awe that you have for me. And transfer it to your spouse. And and really, that's the biblical way that our relationships are supposed to work. It's really the way God designed relationships to work. Because he talks about this all, this is a theme all throughout scripture. It's not just husbands and wives. It's all throughout scripture. Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. That's the way relationships work. That, and, it, and it's counterintuitive. I know it is. But he says, this is the way relationships work. If you will take that first step. Think about it this way. What are the type of people that you are attracted to? Are you attracted to the kind of people that are self-centered, that are always talking about themselves and how great they are, who are always expecting you to take care of them? Or are you attracted to the person who takes an interest in you? Who asks you about your job? And what you've done lately and where you're going on vacation. Which type of people are you most attracted to? It's the people that are interested in you. See, that's the way relationships really work. And so he says, the first thing you got to do to turn a me marriage into a we marriage is you got to come to grips with the fact that it's your selfishness that's the problem. And then take responsibility for that. Work on your own selfishness instead of trying to change the other person's. Second one is don't allow your desires to become expectations. We all come into a marriage with, with certain desires. We have hopes and dreams and, and all these things and pictures of what we expect life to look like once we get married. And most of those are legitimate. One of the big reasons why we get married is we are looking for another person to, to fill some of those gaps and those holes that are in our own personhood. 
And it goes all the way back to the creation story where God said it is not good for man to be alone. There was an incompleteness about that. And so when we marry, what we are doing is looking to fill some of those gaps. And we all have them. And and they're, they're legitimate. They're legitimate desires. Most of them are. Some of them aren't. But the problem is when our desires become expectations. Because when desires become expectations, all expectations are they are unspoken demands. That's really what an expectation is. It's something that you expect the other person to do that you demand that they do, but you don't tell them what it is. And who can possibly live up to that? See, when your expectations, when your dreams become expectations, it just, it just changes the equation. I'll give you a good example. I've, I've told this story before, but it, it just drives it home. It goes all the way back to when we were first married, 30, almost 36 years ago now. And, and one of the big arguments we had over and over again, the thing we fought about most was this. What our roles are when I get home from work. Because here's how it worked. In Betty's family, her dad always got off work at the same time. Every day, same time. And one of the agreements, one of the deals with with her mom and dad were that he would not go and have a beer with the guys. He wouldn't hang out with the guys after work. He would come straight home. And she would always have a nice cold beer sitting for him. And they would sit down and talk about their day. That, That was the routine. That's what she saw modeled. That was her expectation, okay? On my side of the family, my dad was a building contractor. He didn't get home at the same time every day. Very often after the regular work day, he was meeting with a new client or, or, or an architect or, or had other business appointments and meetings. So he didn't get home. He got home any time anytime between like five and six o'clock. So we didn't have a set dinner time. And my mom didn't even start cooking dinner until she heard the garage door open and the truck pull in. Because otherwise it was going to sit and get cold. That was their, that was their routine, okay? So, so what would happen is, in my wife's family, her dad would come home, they would sit down, he'd have his beer, and they would sit down and talk about their day. How was your day? Oh, this happened, this happened. How was your day? And that's what they would do. That was their routine, okay? In my home, my dad came home from work. That's when my mom really started dinner. He would grab the newspaper and go hibernate in the bathroom for about a half an hour. <laughs> so you can see, that's my expectation, this is Betty's expectation. So I come home. I was in the summertime off school. I would be working for my dad. Get off work. I'd come home. I'd walk in the door, grab the newspaper, go hibernate in the bathroom. And she's expecting me to sit down and talk about my day. So she would come and actually try to carry on a conversation through the bathroom door. <laughs> yeah, she really did this. And I'm in there and I'm going to, you know, I'm, why won't she leave me alone? All I want is a little peace and quiet. This is my time, okay? And she said, why won't he talk to me? Why does he come? First thing, he comes through the door and he goes in and he just locks himself in the bathroom and he's gone for half an hour. And, and this was a constant, it's, it's a stupid little thing. But we fought about this more than anything else the first year we were married. And it's all about expectations. It's a stupid little thing, but it was all about our expectations. I had a set of unspoken expectations, which became my demands. Leave me alone. When I come home from work, leave me alone. And her expectations were, when you come home from work, you sit down and talk with me. And there were these unspoken demands that were expectations. And it wasn't until we really sat down and tried to figure out, why are we having this argument over and over and over again, that we began to realize it was about our expectations. 
You come into your marriage with desires and wants, but don't let them become expectations. Because the deal with expectations are there are these unspoken demands, and because they're unspoken, who can possibly live up to them? And then what happens is you start grading each other. Because when, when you've got expectations and they're not being met, what happens is you have this feeling like you are putting more into this relationship than the other person is. See, and so you start keeping accounts. And you, you say, I'm, I'm making all this investment here. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. This is what, and he's not doing any of these things that I expect of him. I'm making more of an investment here, and I'm not getting enough of a return. So what do we do when we're not getting a return on our investments? We quit investing. Which, of course, on the other side is always interpreted as, well, now I'm not getting any return on my investment, so I start pulling back on how much I invest in this. And after a while, the marriage goes bankrupt. And nobody knows why. Because there's this whole accounting thing going on inside of our heads. And what happens with that is you start this bargaining thing. And I I see it so often in marriages. It's like, okay, well, he got a new set of golf clubs, so I get to go get a new pair of shoes. Or, or, Or he gets to go out and hang out with the guy, so I get to go here and and it goes on and on and so the marriage becomes more of a contract than a covenant then it's all about bargaining well if you do this then i get to do that and if, well if you're going to do that then i get to do this because that's worth a lot more than this you know and and, and we're always weighing around and we're always bargaining i honestly a number of years ago this there was a couple that we knew sitting at the dinner table together we're, we were all having dinner together and we're sitting at the table and she has a letter that she needs to mail but she doesn't have any stamps. He happens to have some stamps in his pocket. I'll sell them to you. <laughs> Honest truth. I, I sat there and I could. She had to buy stamps from him. Okay, that, that, was, that was the level of bargaining that was going on in that relationship. But see, that's what, when it devolves, that's what happens. That's why Paul gives some very specific instructions. See, in we marriage, what happens is we sacrifice for the other person. We don't keep accounts. We give sacrificially, whether we get return on the investment or not. So he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Not because he's better, not because he's bigger, not because he's earned it, but as to the Lord. The Lord is the model. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not because she's so lovable, not because she cooks you a great meal, not because she deserves it, but because of the Lord. See, that's the basis. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands. Well, how, does, how, do, you, how do we submit to the Lord? It's a matter of trust, confident assurance, belief that he has my best interest at heart, that when he tells me something, it's because he cares about me. That's what submission looks like. Husbands, love your wives, and in case you didn't get it, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that look like? That was an act of submission. That Christ came, first of all, from glory to live among us. And even with all of the authority that he had, he never, never in his earthly ministry did he ever use his authority in an authoritarian way, ever. He always used his authority to serve others, to heal, to teach, to wash his disciples' feet. And then ultimately, 
ultimately to submit himself to a death on a cross, being killed by the very people he was coming to save. Husbands, that self-sacrificial, unconditional love is what it looks like for you. Not because she earned it, not because she deserved it, but because of Christ. See, what he's saying in all this thing is this, this mystery, this whole mystery that he's talking about is that in, on, a, on a miniature level, if you will, on a micro level, our marriages are to be portraying what Christ has done for us and our love relationship with him. That's what it comes down to. It only works, it only works if we're both willing to make that sacrifice and, in fact, willing to take the first step. What happens so often, because this passage has been mis- mistaught, that we often, in this whole bargaining mentality, is that, that you know, a wife hears this idea of submission and says, well, okay, that's fine, I'll submit, when he starts this unconditional sac- self-sacrificial love. Okay, when he does that, then I'm willing to submit. And of course, husband is saying, well, I'm not going to give her that kind of love until she shows some submission to me. And so husband is saying, submit, submit, submit. You got to submit to me. I'm, the Bible says I'm authority. And, and, and well, you, you got to love me. You got to love me. You got you to sacrifice yourself for me. You got to give everything up for me. That's not we marriage. That's just me marriage with a cross hanging around its neck. Okay, that's what that is. That's not going to get you where you want to go. He says, no, you take the initiative. You do the first thing. Love by its very nature is about giving. Love is patient, Scripture says. Love is kind, does not look out for its own interests, does not keep track of other people's wrongs. When we treat marriage like a contract, it becomes very superficial. And we miss out on the intimacy that it was designed to bring us. Last week, I was at a conference at the Thrive Conference up in Sacramento. And um, one of the speakers there, they had a, a lot of breakout sessions, a lot of different tracks. They had a ministry track. They had a marriage track. They had a personal growth and development, spiritual growth track. They had all kinds of different um, breakout sessions you can go to. And I kind of did a sampling of a couple of them. But I went to one, and the speaker, the Friesens, uh, there are a couple, they do a lot of marriage conferences. And they were talking about this very thing. And they said, you know, we were doing this conference at a hotel. And um, we were talking about, talking about all the issues of marriage. We were talking about sex. We were talking about um, maintaining your marriage, developing intimacy, all of these different things. And he said, after, after the, the first day's session, um, there was one couple in particular. And, and the husband, see, the husband heard this whole thing and, and sex and, and how sex has to be, you don't withhold from your husband and you, know, the, the, you give your life and you give your body for each other. So he's thinking that evening, oh boy, sex tonight, sex tonight. And, and his wife, of course, she's been listening to all these things. She goes, wow, we need to work on our marriage. So she's thinking, we need to have a good long talk. And he's thinking, I'm going to have sex. And she's thinking, we're going to have a talk. And what happened was, he said, what happened was later in the evening, as they were walking through the lobby, they saw the wife sitting by herself going over her notes from the day seminar. Because both were fighting for what they want and what they expected, and they, neither one of them got any of it. But he said, if, we, if they had done the opposite, if they had chosen to put the needs of the other person first, they both would have won. And that's the way relationships work, because that's the way God designed them. 
See, it's so counterintuitive to give up my rights, to give up my interests, to give up my expectations. Then who's going to take care of me? But I'm telling you, if you will take the first step and not wait for the other person, if you will take the initiative in this, you may not get the results right away. You might think, okay, Sunday afternoon, I'm giving it all up. I'm gonna, and by Thursday, you expect your whole marriage to turn around and be beneficial to you. Okay, it's not going to work that way. Because this isn't about manipulating the system. This is simply about how relationships work. And what Christ says, if you will be a giver, if you will be a sacrificial lover, if you will put the other person first, their rights, their interests, if you will sit down and listen and talk to them, become a, become a student of your spouse, if you will do those things, you eventually will benefit. You will. Because if you both do it, you both win. If neither of you will do it, you both lose. And if you're doing it one-sidedly and your spouse doesn't get it, do it anyway. Because one of the things that Scripture is very, very clear on is that in time, God does His work through your actions. So don't hold out waiting for the other person. And the last thing, to turn a me marriage into a we marriage, make it your mission. Make it your mission to see your spouse flourish. Your goal for your marriage is to make your spouse the very best version of themselves that God designed them to be. That it's your job to support and to encourage and to help, not to pick at and nag and thinking you're making them a better person that way, but by investing in and caring for and loving unconditionally. If anything, husbands have been given the greater responsibility in this one. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. See, Jesus never used his authority for his own sake. He always used his authority for the sake of others. He did it for us. And I know some of you, some wives are thinking, I thought I was marrying a prince and I ended up with the frog, okay? And, and, you know, if he would just change, it would make it so much easier for me. But if you would make it your mission to see your spouse flourish, you benefit from that. I can't tell you how much of a better person I am. Not I'm a great person, but I'm a better person because of my wife. Through all the things that I've put her through, through all the places I dragged her to, for all the ups and downs that we've been through together, I am a better person because of her, because she invests in me. See, here's what happens. We all grow up getting all kinds of messages from all kinds of people about who we are. And there's a tremendous healing power in a marriage when a husband or a wife says, you are the most beautiful person in the world. That is healing to someone who never thought they were that beautiful, who has insecurities about their looks or their intelligence. You are the smartest person I know. And that's not, that doesn't have to be a lie. It doesn't mean somebody has a higher IQ, if somebody has a higher, higher IQ that you're just discounting that. What you're saying is you are the one person that means the most to me. And of all the wives, of all the husbands that I could have chosen, you're the best. 
You're the best. And there's tremendous healing power in that. Because a lot of us grew up getting all kinds of messages and many of them were not positive. And to know that at least in one person's lies, I am the most handsome man on this earth, though I'm losing my hair <laughs> and I'm getting a lot more wrinkles than I used to and I'm, my brain and my memory is getting worse and worse all the time. But in one person's eyes, I'm the greatest man on this earth. And for my wife to know that of all the women on this earth, she's the greatest. And when you invest in that, and when you do the things that help her, help him to flourish, you're investing not only in your spouse, you're investing in your marriage. And you're building her up. See, Christ came and he loved us, not because we were lovely, not because we were lovable, but to make us lovely. And that's our job as husbands and wives. And he did it sacrificially. This is love. John, 1 John 4, 10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice to, for our sins. See, love is always sacrificial. Love is always about giving. That's the pattern. That's what real love is. And if you choose to make that your priority, in the long run, you do benefit. As hard as it might be, there's tremendous, tremendous healing power. Scripture says this is a profound mystery. And I'm talking about Christ and the church. What Paul is saying is, you have the opportunity, if you are a Christ follower. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. But if you are, and you understand what it is that Christ has done for you, when you understand the sacrifice that he has made for you, when you understand how much he has transformed your life because of his love, when you begin to understand that, this starts to make a little bit more sense. And what Paul is saying is, in our marriages, we have the opportunity to be an example to the world of how Christ treats his church. If I go about treating my wife the way Christ has treated me, that's an example to a world that's very skeptical about love and about marriage. And she for me. See, we are modeling something that Christ has already done. And that not only benefits me, it not only benefits my marriage, not only benefits my family, benefits my world. Because the love of Christ is being demonstrated on a regular basis. That makes sense. Makes sense. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.